Welcome to the show. I'm Open Mike Eagle. This is season four, episode four, with our magnanimous every week guest, Quest Love. This is what it happened was. On this episode, we get into the story of the making of the first album many people, including myself, heard the roots on. Do you want more? Last episode, we left off. The Roots had just put out Organics and signed a huge deal with Geffen Records. We pick up here at their signing party. Request Love has just gotten some very difficult family news, and that actually informs how we approach the sessions for Do You Want More? In the story, look out for cameos from Lauren Hill, David Letterman. How the hell do they fit in? You can support this show by using the sponsor codes and the ads and leaving us a five star rating on your podcast platform. Speaking of platforms, I'm on tour this December. I'm not going to have any platforms on the tour. I can't afford that. I'm on a tour for non roots music. Open Mike Eagle music. I'll be in Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, Brooklyn, D.C., Philly, Boston, Miami, and Orlando. You can go to MikeEagle.net to find out uh, pertinent details on dates and venues. Tickets for all of those are on sale now. This is the Stony Island Audio Network, the home for rap podcasts you can actually listen to. Including shows like Dad by Rap Pod, Stories About Songs with Kevin Beecham, The Fatherhoods Podcast, Questions, Hip Hop Trivia Podcast, Super Duty Tough Work with Blueprint and The Logic, and more. And with that, let's get into it. Season 4, Episode 4, What It Happened Was, Do You Want More? Part 1, From the Ground Up. This is Open Mic Eagle. This is season four, what it happened was we pretty deep into it, but the question remains, do you want more, do you want more, As for encore, we fly to condors, so shout to the sponsors, we got to the top floor, saw organic like we passed to the popcorn, come on and get on board, do you want more, As for encore, we fly to condors, so shout to the sponsors, we got to the top floor, saw organic like we passed to the popcorn, come on and get on board the train, Crazy as Osborne's, I asked if you want more, you asked for Encore, we fly as a condor, shouts to the sponsors, we got to the top floor, it's all organic like we passing the popcorn, want more, ask for Encore, we fly as a condor, we shout to the sponsors, we got to the top floor, it's all organic like we the We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, 
and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Welcome to another episode of What It Happened Was. Once again, privileged and honored to be joined. Like what you've done with the place. I, I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we take these Patreon donations and, hey. and we flip them into you, nice spaces. You do well. You know? Yeah. Rent to own type of situation. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Last we left off, you had uh, just put out organics. No, and y'all had gotten signed. Yeah, we just got signed to Do You Want Before, Do You to, Want More. To Geffen. So we was ready. Yeah. Big time. Y'all was fly on stage at the signing party. Yeah, man. We was ready. Oh boy! <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is prime uh, major label, peak major label uh, era. Yeah. How many albums did y'all sign for? Okay, so the situation with the, if you remember in the last episode when I told you that uh, we had negotiated with uh, Ed Eckstein and Lisa Cortez. Um, I'm just finding out filmmaker Lisa Cortez. I totally forgot that she was the vice president of Mercury Records. Uh, then, and then you know, um, Wendy Goldstein mm-hmm. sold us away to Geffen. And one of the key things, besides the money, one of the key things that attracted us to Geffen was that, um, you know, when labels sign you, uh, they make it convenient for them to drop you any moment right. they want to, right. but you have to stay as long. So, you know, I've seen cats. I went to a signing party once. There was an artist named Shadacious. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very Philly that's name. Audacious name. No, yeah. he, had, he had a joint called, uh, I'm going to put my thing down. I believe that was like Steve Stout's very first artist back when Steve Stout was like a roadie for Kid and Play. Wow. So there's a connection there. They got him, you know, it was like Philly Pride. He he was uh, an RCA artist. And I remember we went to a signing thing and his signing party. And it was like, yeah, you know, signed for a 16 record deal. Me and Tariq was like, six, damn, 16. That's what's up. And my lawyer was like, you idiots. Like, no. <laughs> so that, that's when they explained to me. That you know what's what's in the best interest of the label is to keep you as long as possible, and they put it in basketball terms. I can understand. Like in other words, Chicago Bull gets to keep you know Michael Jordan for sixteen years, mm-hmm. but they can drop him anytime they want to, like and with options. And options are like eight times a year they have to meet. Do we still like this guy or not like mm-hmm. this guy? So that's the one thing our lawyer got rid of in this Geffen clause, which was basically, um, he said if they make, do you want more? You have to keep them and increase their budget for Illadelph Half Life mm. and things fall apart. And if they make phrenology, you have to keep them for tipping point and uh, game theory. Mm-hmm. And if they make rising down, then you have to keep them for under. So basically, if we make album one, you got to keep them for two and three. Mm. And I assure you, if we were on any other label, 
they would have probably dropped us maybe after Distortion of Static single. So, you know, mo- a lot of acts get, you know, get a deal and then the label's not too sure. And, you know, like, so pretty much rap acts have to prove themselves right out the gate. Mm. And they they assured us that, you know, because they were a rock label. So they believed in, like, we were probably the last group that did the old model of, like, slow burn. Because, you know, they were talking in terms of, like, yeah, and then by your fourth or fifth record, mm-hmm. you guys will have arrived. But, you know, we'll make sure that we do a foundation. And meanwhile, I'm like, no, like, Nation of Millions was the second. I'm like, why can't we blow up mm. our first record? And they were like, no, 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 no. Let's do slow and they steady. They were trying to develop, y'all. Yeah, and we really weren't trying to hear that, but okay, uh, whatever you say. So, you know, so we that's pretty much what our deal was. So, you know, and it was financially secure. Like, as I told you, we called their bluff in terms of the financing of mm-hmm. it. So our manager also really like sort of, um, sort of guided us away from that old, like, you know, anybody else would have got a press release like, you know, rap band from Philadelphia signs for near seven figures. Right. Which, again, I told you, like, Three Feet High and Rising was made for $25,000. Right. Cypress Hill's first record was made for $40,000. But we used all that money for, like, marketing. And, I mean, it's it's a lot to be a band and the things that we want, like travel. And, right. So it wasn't like we were lighting cigars with $100 bills. <laughs> but we we had a real budget. So... The plan going into the studio for Organics, you went in there thinking you were about to sample some records and make some traditional kind of hip hop. And then that. That's what I wanted to do. That's what you wanted to do. And then that changed the live instrumentation. Now, Mm -hmm. going into the sessions for Do You Want More, are you still wanting to do the live instrumentation? Are you wanting to mix it up? Like, what was your mindset going into those those early sessions? Um, You know, once Organics was done, I liked Organics, even though I didn't know, like, we made organics. Those that are watching right now really can't see the the magnitude of this room, but this is like a, I mean, it's a nice studio for a podcast, but this would sort of be very cramped for a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Otto, I forget Otto's last name. It's, it's Otto C is what we called him, but he had a um, sort of like a makeshift garage that he turned into a studio. 92, 93 was sort of the end of like, the the hair metal hard rock phase, you know, groups like uh, you know, those groups that would have those uh, logos that were like, you know, like Poison, Slayer, Motley Crue, right, White so, Snake, yeah, because yeah, once Nirvana, like the same way that Dr. Dre's The Chronic sort of like changed the game for yeah. all of hip hop, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind changed the game for all of rock, absolutely. So he would record like. You know, there'd be like uh, some local tri-state area bands that might have to make a demo or something like. So, he was his studio was more geared for like hard, heavy metal rock. Which, believe it or not, like if you saw the drum set that I made organic, so I'm like when people see me, they think of like a very small drum mm-hmm. kit and you know, like one kick, one snare, one floor time, and a cymbal. Um, I mean, I was recording this shit on like Google, like Van Halen drum set, or even <laughs> even that Google, like uh, Neil Peart. Mm-hmm. 
like okay. I'm playing past the popcorn on like it had to have been at least a 20 piece kit like a like, stadium joint yeah like <laughs> the drums surrounded me but you know I just only kick snare hi-hat and one cymbal So, but, you know, I didn't know how to find a sound. You know, when Scott Storch joined the group, like, I I didn't know, like, about, like, Fender Rhodes or Patches or how to operate a drum machine. So, basically, you know, the way we created songs was just, like, I would think of a cool part that I would want to sample, not even have, like, a set or, or reference of it. I would just hum it to, okay, you play this. Do, 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 do. You know, they are all like eye roll, like, here you, <laughs> all right, Hummingbird, what's my, that's what Hub used to, all right, Hummingbird, what's our line again? So I didn't know anything about studio technology, about mics or how to get a sound or whatever. So I'm actually quite shocked that I got that sound from organics, which is relatively satisfactory. I think that's a good, like, ground zero for mm-hmm. me. Do you want more? I'll tell you what changed. One, we're going to record this at the legendary Sigma Sound Studios in Philadelphia. The same place where Gamble and Huff and basically all of the sound of Philadelphia was recorded. This is where David Bowie made Young Americans. Teddy Pendergrass. Patti LaBelle. The Intruders. If you were a Philadelphian, you recorded at Sigma Sound Studios, Mm -hmm. Joe Tarsia, uh, the owner. And so we decided to make that our home base. Um, Shout out to Dave Ivory, um, who had Studio C there. So what changed for me was... uh, that night, that if you remember, like we we had a big giant record party signing night right. where, um, I I also failed to mention that um, I was previously interning at Roughhouse Records mm. around the time that Crisscross uh, blew up. Uh, there was like a Philadelphia music convention, like their version of Jack the Rapper, and you know I saw Chris Schwartz, and I was like, you know, I'm I'm Lee Andrews' son. Like that had a little bit of cachet. Like being my father's son got me into creative and performing arts long after auditions were mm. allowed. Um, and Chris Schwartz said I could intern at Rough House. So like, at, this is at the time when Criss Cross is like opening for Michael Jackson on the Dangerous wow. Tour. So I would have to pack all these posters and stuff for them to sign at record stores, like send them ahead of time, FedEx them. Okay, they're in Germany, so send 500 packs of things from the autograph. And that was basically my job. You know, Tim Dog. sometimes Tim Dog would come down and record uh, Cypress was about to make like Black Sunday. Wow. My last day there, two things happened. Uh, one, Chris Schwartz was kind enough to cut us a check for $1,500 so that we could make the Pasta Popcorn video to wow. get played on like local. We made a video for Pasta Popcorn. I think, it's, I think it's on YouTube. The publicist of that uh, label said, hey, there's a group that's just like you guys. 
and they're brand new. We're about to sign them. Can they open for you guys at your at your uh, record signing party? Like this was go- we were, we wanted in our mind that Shadacious record thing that like yeah, we yeah. wanted our version of that. You know, like I mean, we we didn't know anything, so it's like wow, like we could rent out a nightclub and invite all of Philly down, and then they could be like, ah, oh, damn, the roots blew up. So. Um, I remember uh, we had a we had a relationship with Patrick Moxie who owned Payday Records, so um, that's how Premier and um, Jay Rue came down. This is when like this is when Come Clean was like super red hot, and not to mention you know one of our managers was the AJ Shine was the Stretch Armstrong and Bob Beetle of Philadelphia, so he had pulled to get like. Some underground acts. So we got J. Rue and Premier to perform at our party. Wow. Um, some local Philly acts, like shout outs to Divine Beings. Um, and then um, I remember that, oh, by the way, guys, I, I made a promise to the people at Rough House that this group that's sort of like us can open for us. And the second I came in the sound check and the group walked in, I, I looked at the, the girl in the group. Uh oh. I was like, yo. You're the joint from As the World Turns. Yo. And she's like, shh. <laughs> Lauren was like, yo. I'd die if he ever found out that I can't even read or write my own name. You can learn, and you said you wanted to, and I think you'll enjoy this way. Remember, you told me that you like rap music? I thought if I wrote out the lyric to one of these songs and uh, showed you how to sound out the, the, uh, the words, that, that you'd enjoy learning to read. I was like, yo, as the world turns, this act too, right? I I had no clue. And they they came and it was like it was like a clown car. It was like 29 people getting out of a 15-passenger van. <laughs> <laughs> and they came on stage, and this this story is gonna serve you uh later during the Illadelph Half-Life period. Their show was like so weird because it was more like it was definitely more Haitian ritual, like they were lighting incense and okay. doing Haitian things. It, Haitian things. I'm sorry. I'm Benin as well. I just <laughs> discovered my roots are there, so I'm not trying to, you know, draw a dividing line. But that night also was the night that um, my mother announced, uh, told me, the marriage is over, and I'm leaving. Whoa! And um, you got to understand the thing that really separated me from every kid I knew. All my all my friends, whatever, was like, it was rare to have a two-parent household right. where I grew up. So, like, parent-teacher night, my parents would come, both. Like, people would marvel, like, Amir has a dad and a mom. <laughs> like, and my parents were, like, hip. My dad was, like, Denzel Washington, handsome. My mom was, like, a, you know, she was a print model in Pittsburgh. Like, you know, I kind of took pride in the fact that, like, my mom and dad, who are in entertainment, like, as far as like the performative perception of that sort of type of family, mm-hmm. I took pride in, and it's just been a thing all my life. And now it's over. Mm. Like inside, we were dysfunctional as fuck. But you know, back then it was like fake it till you make it. And outside, no matter what was happening, we were cool. But she announced to me that night, the night of this party, the night of this party, it was wow. that it was over, and she was probably going to leave uh in a week and by leave meaning like kind of dear john letter style leave like bamf disappeared out right so out to some other state immediately somewhere. half my uh half of my uh advance check goes to her to wow. help her facilitate 
her, you know, leaving the state, going to live with her sister down south. Um, so my first day of recording, Do You Want More, starts with like really this just the best acting job of my life. Cause, you know, my dad's gonna have to wake up and go to the bathroom and then see the Dear John letter. Wow. Amir, your mother. And I'm like, what? Wait, what? And then you gotta act. Oh, what? that's what you mean by acting. No, oh. really? Oh. So it was it was like one of the worst times of my life. And I think just to avoid the turmoil of seeing like my deflated, defeated dad try to piece it together. Cause this just hit him like a sucker punch. Right. But he kind of saw, he kind of knew it was coming. Um, so thus I just made a decision that I'm gonna just stay at the studio forever. Mm. So, and this is rare because, you know, I'm certain that in most Roots organization mine, like, I'm the king of CP time, but, <laughs> you know, just to, like, not have to face my dad at home. Because right. then it sort of came like, well, how does she do it? Did you help? Did you not? Like, that sort of right. thing. Um, I just pretty much decided I'm going to stay at the studio forever. So as a result, like, mostly, you know, sessions would start at, like, 12 in the afternoon. I'd be there at 7 in the morning. And there's nothing to do. And, you know, the engineer's there. So I just figured, all right, let me learn the lay of the land. Uh, so, you know, and Dave Ivory, our, our engineer um, of Ivory Sound, was basically like, look, all right, well, this is a Ribbon Royer microphone. This is a Shure 57. This is a 58. And all right, so what do they use for the Philadelphia International? Okay, so they put a blanket on the drums. So pretty much, I'll say that maybe we, we started recording sessions of Do You Want More in December? Because if you, if you remember when I told you about the whole Mercury versus Geffen situation, mm -hmm. Giles Peterson, uh, who's the tastemaker of, he's the John Peel of left to center music. Mm -hmm. Like the first time that, Europe hears of Dilla or Jill Scott or Erica or just anyone left to center is through this guy because he has the biggest radio set. He's on BBC One. Right. He has a show called Worldwide FM with Giles Peterson. Giles wanted to be the person that has the roots on his label. His label was associated with Mercury. I see. But once we weren't on that, we went to Geffen. He still went to Wendy Goldstein at Geffen like, can we please just strike some sort of distribute? Like, I'm the guy that should. And, and we agreed. So we struck a deal in which we could make an EP, and we called it From the Ground Up. I love that EP. Right. So we made From the Ground Up on uh, Talking Loud Mercury. So this was at the same time as Do You Want More? Yeah, at the same okay. time. So it was... The way we figured it, it's like a nightclub. Like someone's going to have to hand out the flyer to let you know what's about to come. Right. And he said, let me put from the ground up on my label and, you know, announce, you know, the roots are coming. And, and hence the song Worldwide. Yeah. And that's Worldwide is what he named this radio show after. Right. There was an immediate rush. So the plan was that we were going to release uh, From the Ground Up, I believe, in April or May, March or April of 1994. 
And then as Proceed said, the plan was to release Do You Want More on the 28th of June. I'm representing Philly on the 20th. Right. That nigga represented on the 20th of June. I'm representing Philly on the 20th of June. I can make you feel that I'm a surreal car. The plan was let's pick the six songs that are going to be on uh, from the ground up and then get that ready. So, um, pretty much just me avoiding my dad at all, all costs, I decided. I'm going to stay at the studio and learn everything about the studio. What does this button do? How do I get sound like this? Bring a record in. How can I make it sound like that? So the first, the first phase of my education of studio technology starts there, which is important. Yeah. The first song we recorded was Mellow My Man. That's the thing. We didn't... Oh, the night before we went in the studio, Rich said something. He's like, yo, we don't have any songs. Hmm. And we're like, oh, yeah. Because, again, the way that we did organics was just like, go to the studio. All right, you do this. And Rich was like, you guys are actually getting the practice of, like, writing songs. And we never rehearsed. Right. So that was weird. So um, at the time, Hub, our bass player, lived in, like, a loft in Germantown, Philadelphia. So we decided, okay, the Sunday, bef- the Sunday night before we go, you know, in the studio, we'll go to hubs and see what jams we can come up with. Mm-hmm. And I believe like a door happened to be like playing as we arrived, a door by Prince. And somehow that ad lib, like, you know, at the end of a door, you don't know what you Somehow, like, we were just mocking an RB song, like, a door then morphed into like some sort of Jodeci, ooh yeah, ooh yeah. <laughs> and then Tariq just started singing like, girl, you know that you need to stop giving me the silent treatment, baby. Well, we meant it as a joke. And then uh, AJ, our, you know, our manager was like, yo, that's dope. So then it was like, Okay, let's let's that'll be a song that we record. So we we had silent treatment in the bag. And then right after that, everything was derivative on songs that were there at the time. Right. And then um I remember like maybe ten minutes later, like Leon Thomas might have been on Temple's RTI singing a song from my father. And then suddenly Hub like manipulated that and then like swept away came. But again, it's like a song like Swept Away wouldn't be on a hip hop record. So again, like a lot of this stuff just started out, out as jokes. Interesting. But then, you know, Malik would just be like, MC's just swept for days, must be swept away. And we're like, is that a song? Okay, let's mark that down. So literally, the the only thing that we had in the bag that was for sure was Mel and My Man. And that's only because we couldn't fit Mel and My Man on organics. We're set it like this. Yo, check it. Bust it. Lottie, Dottie. Who likes the party like Slick Rick the Bula? I'm cooler than the ice brick. Got soul like those Afro picks with the black fist. And leave a crowd tripping like John the Baptist. It's the cause of that. Oh, shit. So we had more Mel and My Man. 
swept away in silent treatment, already ready to go. So we're like, okay, well, we got three songs. And then um, Scott Storch, whom we're still marveling at the karaoke factor. Right, that you can, he can play anything. He can play anything and suddenly like, whoa, that's dope. So just like the novelty of seeing someone create something in real time. I think Scott, like Scott's favorite hip hop record back then was um, Straight Out the Jungle. Say what? If you remember the last song called the promo on Q Tip on it, yeah, 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 on the Jungle Brothers album. Oh yes, right. <laughs> and so <laughs> he always liked uh, that horn line from it. Here we go. from the average white band. So right here. That line that the Jungle Brothers used. Scott would always riff on that and sound check. And so... Um, we had a oh based on the jungle brothers it's coming it's coming right. it's, so that's where the, like the amount of just native tongue <laughs> nipping and butting you know and it's kind of embarrassing seeing the guys because it's like deep down i'm like i know they're looking at us like you biting motherfuckers. <laughs> but it wasn't that it was just like we were a street group we were a busking group right. and a lot of our songs were just based on native tongue songs but i mean our manager was right. Eventually, we would have to get in the songwriting. So um, the last thing I remember was um, the Friday before. So two days before that, the Friday before, I was at home, and Arsenio was on. And I don't know if you're a Letterman fan, but there's a thing that Letterman used to do called Stupid Human Tricks. Oh, yeah. This is something we call stupid human tricks. Uh, what you're about to see, these are folks who have taught themselves silly little but interesting things to do. Now, let me remind you, this is only an exhibition. This is not a competition. Please, no wagering. Our first participant tonight... Yeah, he would have, like, you know, people do unusual things on the show, whatever. So this was also, like, the we didn't know it was the last period of Arsenio. Now, Arsenio was such a, a paradigm shift. Like, not since Yom TV Raps and Soul Train has there been a platform that affected black music so much right. as the Arsenio Hall show, especially for rappers. So as a result, um, of course, there's, there's that episode where, you know, when he had Farrakhan on the show, mm -hmm. in which secretly they were like, nope, that's it for you. We didn't know it was going to be Arsenio's last year, so there was a, a backlash that I didn't know about that was happening uh, in his like last year and a half on the air. And he started doing new things on the show. So he started doing his own version of stupid human tricks. I think that if there's a thing where you got to go through your America's Got Talent phase on your late night talk show, that might be your jump the shark moment. <laughs> so might be the end of days. Yeah. And so Arsenio had this guy on with these long ass dreadlocks that literally went to his ankles. 
and he was a black guy and he and he was playing bagpipes and he was dressed like he was from Ireland or whatever and and I told my manager about this yo this guy with his these dreadlocks and he was playing bagpipes on Arsenio Hall and Rich like did the no please don't say it was Rufus Harley I said yeah Rufus Harley <laughs> how'd you know and Rich was like for Rich hearing that Rufus Harley was on the Arsenio Hall show as a novelty act would be like me uh, having disdain if Q-Tip was known for... Nose humming or some shit. Yeah, like something, right, yeah. right. Where I don't know that that guy's a legendary jazz figure that had a career with like Pharaoh Sanders and like free jazz movement or whatever. It He has to resort to this to survive. So just, you know, as a jazz head, it was just like, no. And I was like, well, no, it was actually funny. Like, it was, he's like, no, that guy was serious. Like, mm -hmm. and I, then, then I realized like, oh, that, that guy was an actual artist and they didn't know it. So they just used him as weird enough. Like, incidentally, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, I was once shopping for a suit for D'Angelo platinum party for brown sugar mm -hmm. and letterman happened to walk in with the camera crew doing a sketch about boycotting the emmys and they spot me thinking that i'm just a weird looking black guy i was like you why don't you go to the emmys in place of letterman so there's there's if you look it up like <laughs> you remember like letterman hosted the emmys and it sucked like uh -uh. everybody critically panned it back in like 95 so he was going to boycott the emmys but he decided, like, his big, giant middle finger was like, I'm going to send somebody out there in my place. So they just happened to see weird black guy with an afro in the same place he is. And I never told him. They didn't even ask if I was someone notable. So I wound up being Rufus Harley for a moment. Whoa. And it wasn't until we came back on the show when Letterman was like, oh. <laughs> like, he put two and two together when we finally, you know, came on the show to do You Got Me. So. Rich was like, he's from Philadelphia. We should put him on the record. Mm -hmm. And we're like, yeah, playing bagpipes on our record. And they looked in the white pages. And sure enough, he's like, Rufus Harley. All right, so kids, uh, if kids yeah, are listening there to you. used to be a thing called. Yeah, the, the internet was the white pages when you wanted to find <laughs> the yellow pages and the white pages. So we looked in the white pages, and it was Rufus Harley. And um, the first, it's so funny, with, with old jazz cats, literally like there's such a level of mistrust there because mm. even when we asked james blood almer to play uh guitar on phrenology's water they have this whole chris tucker like i don't know you like that man same time same time right. like he was like wait y'all want me to come down and play bagpipes on a rap record and instantly, like, red flags started to go yeah, up. Yeah, like, for sure. This is too good to be true. We're like, no, sir, we, we saw you on the Arsenio Hall show. Can you come down? And he was like, well, you know, um, y'all going to have to pay me money, mm -hmm. um, you know, to come down there. So, you know, I, I want $250 the second I walk in the door. We're like, $250? No, we're, we'll play your scale. Like, you'll, you'll make, like, we'll pay triples, like, 2000 2000 And we shouldn't have said that. Now he really don't believe us. And... <laughs> 
But luckily, my manager, who used to be a DJ at Temple RTI Jazz Radio, was like, Rufus, I don't know if you know me, but I used to be a manager at RTI. I know da-da-da, da-da-da. And suddenly he was like, oh, this is legit. So Rufus Harley was at the studio in a half hour. So we are now... The very first song we recorded was Do You Want More? Well, I'm a fly Philly nigga. Finger on the trigger. MCs repent from sins. God's coming again original. What vision every individual original. What vision every individual I proceed as I get... You know, we spent about an hour just recording his parts because Do You Want More? Uh, do You Want More is in, in, in C minor. And I think his, his backpipe was tuned uh, maybe a whole key lower so he was in b flat so it wasn't digital time yet or you know now we could just put it in ableton and it changed the key yeah. yeah so we had to like very speed it down and figure out okay how to how to tune him down to to so that it took about like 45 minutes and wow he came in uh he played backpipes and then um my manager joe who knew how to work in sp because none of us i still didn't know how to use a drum machine spent so we spent a lot of time, which is like three hours, just getting the Rufus Harley back part, pipes down. Mm -hmm. um, we knocked out Mel and My Man. I'll say that week we knocked out Mel and My Man. Um, Mel and My, the recording of Mel and My Man and its many bloopers and outtakes will damn near, uh, the way the musicians are, like they'll do a song and then, you know, the engineer has to rewind the tape or whatever, but you're impatient, so you just start jamming and stuff. And then, you know, run the tape. There's a new song. So the recording of Mel and My Man probably gives birth to, like, maybe eight other songs on the record. Huh. So I believe, like, that first day, the seeds of uh, that scat. I know you dig it when I dig it, baby. The seeds of I Remain Calm. The seeds of distortion, ecstatic. Basically, like eight songs came from just that one day. And then, I mean, we would pretty much record from record music from 12 in the afternoon, lose steam around five. Mm -hmm. And then, usually, like five until the evenings, where like Tariq and Malik would just sit in the studio and write to it. I see. I wouldn't go home. So, you know, we decided to do two studio rooms. So, and again, we, we had a, a out-of-control budget. So, I mean, we did some ignorant shit. Like, there was, like, a, a cheap hotel in, like, China, like a Ramada Inn. Oh, thus the Ramada reference in Distortion Aesthetic. Sax a boom in my room at the, the Ramada. Ramada. Right. Indeed, as I distort, I proceed and need getting hotter than sax a boom in my room at the Ramada. For tanks in your memory banks to fill up, I provide the static to scratch the metal. We rented out the entire like third floor of the Ramada Inn around the corner from the studio and set up shop there. So Rich probably by day three decided like sonically we shouldn't sound like a jazz band. It was like one of the one of the main questions. How can we sonically ramp our game up from organics? Mm -hmm. So it's two important figures to that. Number one was Reading album credits, and we discover that Bob Power, Bob Power, is the answer. Coming to New York to mix, 